going to ask you to stand one more time in honor of reading God's Word, Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem, had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the fowl of the beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds were going ahead of him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Continue to speak to us through your written word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Today is Palm Sunday, and it's the start. You may be seated, I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought after I prayed, you're automatically sitting down, I'm sorry. Okay, Palm Sunday starts the... Holy Week, a time when the church reflects upon the days leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, his burial, and of course his resurrection. It marks a day when the people celebrated Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. Many had come from all over to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Now, what was Passover? Passover was celebrating the time when they were released from Egypt, remember the angel of death was the last plague. They put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, and the angel of death came, and he saw the blood, he'd pass over them. And the firstborn in Egypt were all killed. That was the final plague, and then Pharaoh let them go. That's what Passover is celebrating. And they're going there to celebrate what God had done for them, getting out of the bondage of Egypt. And uh, it was great celebration. And the same people, or some of the people that were there that day cheering him as he rode into Jerusalem would be part of the crowd just days later shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Now, some will say that most of the people on their road outside Jerusalem that day waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna were those pilgrims coming from Galilee and all over to come celebrate Passover were the crowd in front of the... Uh, um, Pilate that day were shouting crucify more of people who lived there locally but we don't know but the point I'm trying to make is that the same people who welcomed him as a hero were the, in the next few days shouting for his crucifixion in verse 1 it tells us when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage now there's another town called Bethany that you read about in verse 17 these are small villages just east of Jerusalem on or near the slope of the Mount of Olives. 
The reason Matthew includes this in his gospel, he wants his readers or us to know how close to Jerusalem Jesus was. Or perhaps it was to evoke messianic implications associated with the Mount of Olives. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. And that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. There's a lot of messianic implications happening here. There's also a lot of political ties with all this as well. It was a politically charged atmosphere. He goes and sends his two disciples in verse 2. It says, go into the village opposite you. You will find a donkey tied there. Jesus is constantly making preparations to enter Jerusalem according to the, pro- the prophecy we find in Zechariah 9.9 and Isaiah chapter 62, verse 11. Now, even the rabbis of the day would interpret Zechariah's prophecy as messianic, how the Messiah would come into Jerusalem. So all this is going according to the prophecy that was found in Zechariah. And look what he tells his, his disciples. And by the way, that prophecy was written anywhere between 400 to 500 years before the actual event that we call Palm Sunday. Jesus tells in verse 3, If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord has need of them. So the disciples are to act as servants of the owner who owns the donkeys. This reply means nothing more they're doing what the owner had requested. And Matthew undoubtedly sees Jesus as the true master, not only of the donkeys, but everyone's property. Therefore, he can rightly demand them at any time. Just go in there and tell them. Now, we don't know if that was pre-arranged from Jesus or he was making that happen, but they go and do exactly as he said. And he tells us in the chapter, Matthew, that this is going according to prophecy. Look in verse 5. The prophecy that says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle or lowly or humble, and mounted or seating on a donkey. Now the daughter of Zion refers to the people of Jerusalem. The king, of course, will be the Messiah. Now here's a Messiah who's coming to rescue his people, but he's riding on a donkey. Now, in that time, in that culture, when the Romans won a victory, the victorious general commander of the army would ride in not on a donkey he'd ride in on a white horse with all his military galia on and here's Jesus who they're claiming to be the Messiah blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord they're recognizing this but he's riding on a donkey Gentle, it says. That contrasts very sharply to what a victorious leader would do in that time in the military. But when Christ returns again, he will not be seated on a donkey. Gentle. In fact, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, the description of the coming Christ, John says, I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, 
and in righteousness he judges and makes or wages war. Jesus is coming back victorious. He's not coming back gentle, but coming back as a victorious Savior and Lord as he is. And everybody's going to recognize that. It says back in our text, in verse 5, the last part, even on a colt, the fowl of the offspring of a beast of burden. Now, Matthew is often accused of misinterpreting Zechariah 9, 9, because it says a donkey and a fowl of a donkey. Well, he rode on the young colt, which is the offspring of the donkey, but it was natural that the mother would come with her offspring, the young colt. That was natural. Because she would go, especially when that colt had never been ridden before. So there's two there. You have the donkey and the colt, but Jesus rode on the colt that no one had ridden before. Now the crowds recognize these messianic implications, the Mount of Olives, the donkey. You see the palm branches, you see the shouting. But they don't fully grasp what's going on. In verse 6, we're told the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed. They brought the donkey and the colt. They placed their coats on them. And most of the crowd, a great multitude, if you will, spread their coats in the road. You have to realize how big an event this was. Normally, they estimate the population of Jerusalem was about 50,000 people. But during Passover, that population would swell to 100 to 200,000 people. It's kind of like when you go down 114, there's no race going on at the raceway, but then there's a race there, it gets crowded, tons of people. Just put that in perspective. There's tons of people there. So the social dynamic would, would be intense. The change in population. It was a charged, emotional, exciting political environment. See, leader would know any social disruption would lead to violence. You have to realize word was getting around that this Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And now they're walking him in as a Messiah. Surely if he can raise Lazarus from the dead, he can set us free from the Roman oppression and set up the old kingdom like it was under David. Those are the political undertones that you see happening. He was going to set them free, but not in the way they thought. And this is interesting. Matthew says that others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. But if we go to the Gospel of John, it tells about the same account. He says in John chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, On the next day the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that, Jerusalem was, when, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. Now, palm branches have no part in Passover. None at all. Palm branches played a part in the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of the Booths. And what that was was a feast celebrating how God took care of them when they wandered in the desert. Why they wandered in the desert? Because they, they rebelled against God. They built that golden calf, the foot of Mount Sinai. And uh, Moses said, Aaron, why'd you do it? And Aaron said, they made me do it. Okay, I guess you're familiar with that story. But they had a wonder in the wilderness, and they built these temporary shelters with the palm branches, and they would live in those shelters during the, during the festival. Now, the Feast of the Tabernacles commemorated both the past and the present. God's past goodness and provision in the wilderness, and his present goodness and provision 
and the completion of the harvest. Now, palm branches also became a national symbol in the time that commemorated the time of the Maccabees. Instrumental overthrowing the Greco-Syrian rule of Israel, procession celebrating the rededication of the temple of 164 B.C., and winning full political independence in 141 B.C. So these palm branches had no significance in Passover. They were a national symbol celebrating independence, and that's what they're waving at him and laying before him as he enters Jerusalem. Can you see? They're putting something on Jesus that wasn't God's plan. They were still looking for the physical kingdom here on earth and be put up like it was underneath King David, but that's not why he came into Jerusalem. Oh, he was going to set them free, set us free, but not in the way that they thought. And they took this and they waved it as a political or national symbol. Look what they say in verse 9. Hosanna to the son of David. That's Davidonic terminology. They're mentioning King David again. See, King David was still held in high regard as one of the greatest, if not the greatest king Israel ever, has ever had. That Hosanna in Hebrew means give salvation now or give victory now. They're praying, they're pleading to God for, for him to save them. So Hosanna is our plea for God to save us. Brother, hallelujah, expresses our praise to God for the hope of salvation. That's the difference. So they're shouting this. Hosanna, God save us. Throwing the prom branches at him. Laying their coach down before him. Can you see what is going on? As they're welcoming him in to Jerusalem. Now, the, they're actually shouting some of Psalm 118, verse 26, but that word Hosanna has not appeared in that text. Psalm 118, 26 says, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Or probably they're chanting a paraphrase of Psalm 118, 25. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do sin prosperity. You see what's happening? You know, sometimes it's called the triumphal entry. We'll get more of that in a moment. Go back to the text, verse 10. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred or shaken. Now, the Greek word translated stirred is used to describe earthquakes and upheavals. It's found in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. After Jesus dies on the cross, what happens in the temple? And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, same word we find here, verse 10, and the rocks were split. We find in Revelation chapter 6, verse 13, after the sixth seal is broken, the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its upright figs and were shaken by a great wind. Stirred, it's translated in NIV, was moved, New King James, or upward, New Translation. So, what he's telling us is that the city was wild with excitement or thrown into commotion when Jesus entered. A lot of happenings going on in Jerusalem. It was almost like a powder keg ready to go off. All these implications, all these expectations of what was going to happen, what Jesus was going to do. Perhaps he just ride in and throw the Romans out. I mean, this guy had raised Lazarus from the dead. Can you see 
the anticipation and excitement that the people had. This is it. It's going to happen. God's going to reestablish his throne here in Jerusalem. And there's a question in verse 10, who is this? This is not the ply that they've never seen them or heard of them, but many are in town from Israel. Uh, they came from outside Israel. May I never counted Jesus before. And of course, look at the answer in verse 11. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. That's true, but they don't mention his birth in Bethlehem. That's important because the birth of the Savior was foretold that it would happen to Bethlehem, and they don't get that here. And notice they just say this is the prophet Jesus from the Nazareth in Galilee. They have no knowledge of his kingly birthplace in Bethlehem. Nevertheless, this fever, this this commotion has been stirred off, does deter the authorities from arresting Jesus on the spot. Perhaps that's what kept the Sanhedrin, and some of them didn't like him very much, because let's face it, he was going head-to-toe with the Sanhedrin, and they didn't like what he had to say. They already started plotting how to get rid of this guy. They probably would have done it on the spot when he came to Jerusalem, but because everybody was cheering, the political atmosphere, they're worried about if they did something, people would revolt, the Romans come in and kill them all. I mean, there's a lot of tension going on in here. Now, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is often referred as the triumphal entry. But only a few short days later, as I said earlier, they're going to yell, crucify him, crucify him. Why is that? Look at verse 12 in that same chapter. Glance down. He rides in Jerusalem with all this fanfare, and look what verse 12 tells us. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Now, what they would do is people came in from all over, they would have to change their money into temple money. That's what they're doing. And guess what? They would cheat people. And there was business being done and it makes Jesus mad. So he rides in, glorious, a welcoming in, where's the first place he goes and says, you're doing this wrong, right to the temple. Guess what that made people do? Didn't like him very much after that. See, the crowd assumed that Jesus and his movement would serve their cause, their vision for society. Their vision and Jesus' presence would make the necessary changes. This includes religious, political, and social changes. But Jesus does not satisfy their vision for a society, and that's the reason a week later they yell, crucify him. He didn't do what they thought he was going to do. They were trying to put their own anticipation in what they wanted Jesus to do. But that wasn't the Father's plan. That was not the plan from the beginning. So let me ask you this. In what ways do you and I Likewise, use Jesus to fit our own agenda, our own plans, our own vision for social and political change, attaching the name of Jesus to our own agenda, our plan, or program. Many in this country understand biblical as to affirm their political platform. And to question them is to jeopardize one theological orthodoxy. Listen. 
I'm glad to be a citizen of this country. I serve my country, United States Navy. But Jesus transcends all that. And a lot of times we expect him to do things the way we want him to do things. We even surrender our lives in that fashion. What I mean by that, we go and we put our own conditions down. All right, Jesus, I'll, I'll be a pastor, but you leave within a 50-mile radius of DFW Airport. Uh, I want all these other things. I want a nice income. I don't want to have to sell my house. I don't want to do this, that, and the other. And some of you the same way. Well, keep me in the United States. I don't want to go to a foreign country. I want to stay here. And we put all these conditions on it and say, okay, Jesus, we'll serve you. Just sign on the dotted line. That's what Jesus wants. He desires, and frankly, he, he has every right to expect us to say, whatever you want, I will do, regardless of what it means. We looked at Abraham. What did he tell Abraham to do? I want you to get up and go. And I'll tell you where you're going when we get there. doesn't tell him where he's going, how long it's going to be, Abraham does it. So he wants us to step out in faith without knowing all the details. The Lord desires and demands and deserves our praise, our adoration, and celebration. Too often we see him through the issues of the day. Issues that we are confident or we assume that he stands with us. Can I say this briefly? I think there is a, a need for laws, and you need to pass laws, but just because something's legal does not make it morally right. By default, just because something is passed and is now legal does not make it morally right. Sometimes we're too confident that he stands with us. See, we we come up with these group of ethics, this behavior that we want to promote and we believe in, and then we run to the Bible to find proof text, and then we use it to support our position. Rather than we should go to the Bible first, see what the Bible says about that, and then adjust our behavior or ethics accordingly. I've said this before, the most beautiful example I can, I can give you is that there are some people who will stand in the pulpit and tell you, women, it's your fault the marriage is falling apart. It says in the Bible, submit to your husbands as, as unto the Lord. And they take that verse completely out of context. Gentlemen, do you know what it says right after that verse? Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave, herself, gave himself up for her. That means I'm love Tammy as Christ loves the church. How does Christ love the church? Sacrificially that he gave his life for it. And when she sees me love Christ, love her the way Christ loves her, she'll respond in kind and say, yes, I'll follow you because I know you love me like Christ. You won't hurt me. You won't desert me. You have my best interests at heart. See, marriage is an issue of complementarity. We complement each other. As I see her respond, I love her more, and marriage has nowhere to go but up. But that's an example of how people will take a certain viewpoint and then twist it and assume that God stands with them. And I tell you, Palm Sunday, as great as that parade was and everything going on, they missed the entire point. He was coming to set them free, free from the consequences and the result 
the wages of sin, which is death. That's what Jesus came to do. It's only appropriate that he came on the during the, the feast of Passover because that lamb that was sacrificed unblemished back in Egypt on that day, his blood saved them. Well, his precious blood that was not tainted with sin of any kind was given to cover our sin. Do you know the, the Lord's Supper, as we call it, it really comes out of Passover. They're celebrating Passover. And in the middle of all that, he says he took the cup. He took the bread. This is, this is my body. This represents my body. That's given for you. Then he, the cup, this is the blood, which is the blood of the new covenant that washes away sin. They missed it. They missed the point. Does that happen to us? Come to worship? Pastor, that was a great message. I wish old so-and-so could have heard it. Do we miss the point? Perhaps we were the ones who were supposed to hear that. Well, I don't know when anyone responded. But, well, perhaps you're the one that needed to respond. And yes, you can do that in the pew, but sometimes we need to walk up and come down. Perhaps we miss the point every Sunday. You know, worship, it's not a spectator sport. You need to participate, sing, pray, listen, and respond. Luke 9, 23, Jesus speaking, says, anyone wishes to come after me, if you want to be a disciple of Christ, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be a believer, look what he says. He must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. I mean, it's not about what I want. It's not about my agenda. It's all about him. I mean, it follows. If I trust him with the greatest decision of my life, where I will spend eternity then surely I can trust him with every decision that I make. Who do I marry? Where, what do I do for my living? Where do I serve him? How do I conduct my business? Everything should go through him to ask for his direction. You know, even says that we shouldn't even say, well, I'll see you tomorrow. I should rephrase that and say, if the Lord wills, I will see you tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We have no idea what's going to happen five minutes from now. That's why it's called the present, because that's exactly what it is. What is the Lord laying on your heart this Palm Sunday? Perhaps we need to relearn John 3.16. Instead of saying God so loved the world, that's what it actually says, the cosmos, the world, the universe. Maybe we should just insert our own name there. God so loved Tim. God so loved Larry. God so loved Bev. God so loved Peggy. God so loved Marcia. God so loved Charlie. God so loved Lee. That he gave his only begotten son. That if they believe in him, they will not perish but have everlasting life. Make the gospel personal. Make 
the message applicable to yourself. I'm reminded as I end in John chapter 3, verse 30, John speaking, John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Christ, he was telling people to be baptized for the remissions of sins. He's out in the desert crying in the wilderness. And um, Jesus shows up, he baptizes Jesus, and later on, uh, John gets arrested. And he sends his disciples, I want you to go see if Jesus is truly the Messiah. His disciples go, and they find out, they report back to him, yes, he is. You know what John's response was? John chapter 3, verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. You want to see more people come to, come to Christ? You, you want to see things happen? He has to increase. We have to decrease. Let me tell you, that hits home for me as a pastor and as a preacher because it doesn't come about what I want to preach, my agenda, my opinions. Oh, I can't say that. I can't say this. It's all about what he wants, what he desires. You belong to him. You do not belong to me. It's his message, his salvation that's open to anybody and everybody. So what will you do? Will you see him just as a political figure, a prophet, give him a little nod, cheer him on, and go about your business? Or are you going to see him as he truly is, the Savior of the world? Who is coming back one day on upon a white horse, victorious, faithful and true, with the armies of heaven behind him wearing white linen, sign of purity and holiness, the saints. And he's going to tread the fierce winepress of the wrath of God. It says that his robe looks like it's been dipped in blood because as he stomps out his enemies, the blood splatters up. I know it's not a kind of Jesus you really hear about, but that's, that's Jesus coming back. Now is the time to seek his forgiveness. Now is the time to take his grace. Now is the time to repent. Now is the time to confess because there's coming a day, dear beloved, when they'll all come to a screeching halt. And on that day, it's not going to matter if you came to church every Sunday. It's not going to matter if you gave money every Sunday. It's not going to matter. Those things are important because you do it after a relationship. The thing that's going to matter on that day, do you have a relationship with Christ? And even Christ tells us in the Gospels that many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't do these wonderful things, cast out demons. He doesn't deny that they did these things and did them in his name. What he denies is the fact that he ever knew them or they ever knew him. He said, I'm not careful. I can go about being a pastor and never really know who Christ is. I don't know about you, but that quite honestly scares me. I always have to check my heart. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. As we think of those events that happened on this day so many years ago, Jesus, as you rode into Jerusalem, crowd cheering 
And we often look back and ask ourselves, how did, how did they miss it? The truth be known, we miss it all the time as well. Sometimes we're so busy trying to get things done the way we want them that we stop to think, how it is that you want them done? We're so busy making plans in ministry that we stop and ask, Father, what is it that you want us to do? We come up with all these great plans and we come back and ask you to bless it. We should be doing is asking you first. Father, continue to speak to us. Continue to move in our presence. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? 